Historia Canadiana is recorded on the unceded lands of the Kanyankaheka First Nation. Hello, everyone, and welcome Recording to Historia Canadiana. You, you couldn't just stop. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Historia Canadiana, the show where we derail immediately and behind the scenes shit talk some of our profs. <laughs> so today we're it's okay. Going... They're not our actual profs. We just work for them. Exactly. <laughs> it's fine. I know for a certainty that this prof does not listen to this show. <laughs> so. Today, we're going to be starting a discussion on the Métis more properly, and specifically the Red River Resistance. So this is going to be part one of a discussion. So, oh, by the way, Mac is with me. Like, I didn't introduce you like I usually do. (laughs) So before we get started, as always, if you want to support the show, you can do so through Patreon, through PayPal, through a recommended reading page. There's all kinds of ways that you can support us. And if you support us on Patreon, you get an extra episode per month, which I think we'll be recording the latest one soon. And so stay tuned for that. And yeah, for $3, it's less than a pack of gum a month. So consider it. And it really helps boost the show. So Mac, getting into it. The Métis, what's your kind of general understanding of them as a group? I know of them. Okay. And like we got the little spiels about Louis Riel and everything else, Mm -hmm. but we did not learn and see a lot of them, if that makes sense. Right. No, I generally agree. I think for most Canadians, uh, the beginning and end Mm -hmm. of of their knowledge of of the Métis is pretty much with Louis Riel. Um, mostly because he has become kind of a lightning rod for so many elements of Canadian history, right? Mm -hmm. As a member of a bilingual group or multilingual group, actually, because the Métis are considered to have their own language. Um, And also being a linchpin in the Canadian expansionist project, right? And being kind of a focus for a lot of problems or perceived problems that would kind of plague the early Canadian project, especially under Johnny MacDonald. So yeah, the actual term mitzi comes from the French, um, and they have a word called mitzis, right, or mitzage, which is basically a fancy way of saying mixed. Right? And the term itself didn't always have an ethnic connotation to it, or like a, an anthropological, I guess, definition to it. At first, it simply referred to someone, anyone of mixed heritage. And you can actually see the term go as far back, at least in the Canadian context, to Samuel de Champlain, right? Who's actually noted, I think, in the 1600s as having very much uh, explicitly stated that him and his native allies would form like a people. That being said, he was not imagining it in the context of this, of the Métis as we understand it today. Um, From what I understood the Métis at the time or any kind of mixed relations that would have happened were not considered a separate group, right? Mm -hmm. They were baptized French. They took on their father's names, which were often French names, and they were recognized by the church as being exclusively French. So really New France society did not allow for any kind of like emergence of a new population in any way, shape, or form. At best, I think a lot of historians kind of see the Champlain thing as an indication that there are bonds between the two people, but nothing Mm -hmm. more than that. 
So the Métis, as we now understand it today, would have emerged in the 1700s, right? As both French and English populations moved a bit westward, more into what we now know as the Great Lakes region, right? And a bunch of European populations mixed with Ojibwe, Ottawa, and other native tribes that existed around there, and that still exists around there. And while we generally kind of understand the Métis today as French-speaking, right? Mm-hmm. At least I do when I first think of the, the, the Métis. I don't know about you, but I generally imagine that as an almost exclusively French-based population. Um, it was, I was really kind of surprised because one of the books that I mentioned, uh, that I read for research, uh, Jean Thea's The Northwest is Our Mother, very much makes a clear distinction, at least in the time that we're talking about here, between English and French Métis, right? And I thought that was kind of interesting because I never considered it that way. It, perhaps because of my own like settler background, I just kind of all lumped it all together. But apparently there are quite like a distinction between the two cultural heritages. Like one is more Catholic, the other more Protestant. And there's the distinctions that you basically expect from mm-hmm. English and French-based uh, populations. Yeah, that makes some sense. Okay. Now, again, they weren't necessarily known as the Métis then as a uh, kind of uh, population on their own, but you see the groundwork being laid during this time, right? So often the offspring, right, or the children of these European settlers and these native women, or vice versa, were often multilingual. They were skilled interpreters. They were guides. They were they provided for the fur trade, and sometimes they were small scale farmers. So really, they took elements of everything, right? Mm-hmm. They took the farming elements from their European fathers and the fur trade elements while also being firmly aware of um, the, the knowledge of the land and the surrounding areas, right? Essentially oh, okay. being... So at the time, the, these early populations were named the Bois Brûlé, which literally translates to burnt wood, right? And some historians think it's because of their complexion, right? Which, so a bit of racism here, which is always <laughs> nice. So they kind always of refer to... Yeah, uh, to always refer to them as burnt wood. Some historians believe that it was because of the slash and burn methods that they would use for clearing fields, which tended to be much more efficient, just kind of burn it all instead of having to actually clear it by hand. But that's kind of subject to historical debate. Um, Often these Métis populations or these mixed populations would have contracts with what at the time would have been things like the Northwest Company or the Hudson's Bay Company. And a lot of them, once their contracts were up, would just stay in the area and essentially be known as des gens libres, which are known as free men, basically would be the translation. Mm -hmm. So they would basically be independent fur contractors, (laughs) which caused a lot of issues for the eventual monopoly that the Hudson's Bay Company would get. So the Hudson's Bay Company would not be particularly happy about this, um, but ultimately they decided that it was it was not the end of the world because ultimately the Métis or the Bois Brûlé knew what they were doing and they got the job done. And so they kind of let their own traders um, interact with them, despite the fact that it kind of went against their monopoly. But, you know, that's just classic Hudson's Bay Company things, <laughs> just being pissed about the fact that you don't have everything. <laughs> God, that's just, I'm sorry. It's every time I take a look at how the history of Canada and how the fur trade and everything else was run, kind of boggles the mind. Right? Especially, like, such a corporation-centered start, and we're now in a more socialist country. It's kind of fascinating. 
Like right. there was a total rejection of that afterward. Not a total rejection, but there was a major rejection of that when we became a nation. Mm-hmm. Well, as time went on. Yeah, and obviously there's. I th- I think right. You you corrected yourself in, in saying like, oh, maybe not a total rejection, but yeah, I do think it's kind of fascinating. Like, imagine. Every time I hear about the Hudson's Bay Company, imagine the hubris or like the fucking balls that you have to have to say this whole territory from Manitoba to Saskatchewan to like Alberta and up to the north is mine. It is owned by a single corporation. And <laughs> bigger than bigger than many countries today. Yes, exactly. It like it was the biggest, I think it was the biggest privately owned property in history or something like that. It is insane to think about. Right. And and you're right. It's it's so ridiculous when you think about it. Like a few Metis want to also get a bit of like cut from this, of a cut from this no. by selling their trade. It's like, no, absolutely not. It's just it's absurd. And I love it because it perfectly encapsulates this moment of just un unfettered um corporatism and just imperialism. It's just like, here, do whatever you want. This is yours. <laughs> anyway. Um, so it's during this time, by the way, so it's towards the, um, right, right around the time when the Métis are emerging as kind of like a thing on their own, as a population on their own. Um, it's right around this time that the Hudson's Bay Co- uh, Company monopoly would kind of start to falter as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is like a good segue into one of our main characters for this episode, right? Louis Riel to oh, the main emerge. character for a couple episodes, honestly. Right, absolutely. What a um, character, what a figure. So the, the reason why I say that is because Riel's father, Jean-Louis Riel, would actually be one of those fur traders who would actively try to defy the Hudson's Bay Company monopoly, right? Um, he was actively working to get Métis voices into what was known as the Council of Isiniboia, which was basically the local government of the Red River settlement, which we've talked about in previous episodes was like the main settlement in what we now know as Manitoba. Right? Um, we, uh, it's basically a, it was formed by Scottish immigrants and Métis populations eventually also joined in. And so uh, Jean-Louis Riel would very much push for, you know, fur traders to actually be able to participate and to actually have voices. And eventually in 1849, right, he would actually be one who proclaimed the Hudson's Bay Company monopoly to be dead, right? I'd have to find it in the actual book that um, I was reading in Teya's book, but it was basically along the lines of the Hudson's Bay Company was suing one of the Métis traders because of uh, because they were trading, they were, they were just doing their thing, <laughs> and the council had basically decided that no, he's perfectly allowed to like this trader is perfectly allowed to do this trading deal, right? There's nothing stopping him uh, from doing know. it, and it kind of basically opened the floodgates to be like it's it's on, like the Métis can do can, can actually do business, like we actually have legal. A legal background and like a legal precedent. Uh, a precedent to say like we can do it. So the Hudson's Bay Company monopoly is dead, and that was like Jean Louis Riel's uh, uh, big sentence. And he would kind of continue to drive for more uh, Métis uh, independence, if you will, right? or at least uh, bigger nice. Métis voices. So at this time in 1849, his son, Louis Riel, the 11th son, or or like one of 11 sons, I don't think he was his 11th, but one of 11 sons, would have been five years old. 
um, Riel Louis, I mean, uh, was born in Saint Boniface in what is now Manitoba in 1844. <laughs> Sorry, what's so funny? I, think I just, I don't know, it's just funny. One of his many possible sons, maybe a question mark, who knows? <laughs> from, from, what I've, from what I've read, he had 11 sons. Um, no mention of daughters, if they did, um, or if they perhaps were not, n- no one cared at the time and they were just not noted. I don't know. Uh, but from what I've seen, Louis it was, was the last son. Exactly. Just like Superman came to save <laughs> The last son of Saint Boniface. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, a lot of people make comparisons with Superman as kind of like a messianic figure. And he, Louis Riel would definitely go mm-hmm. through a similar phase. Um, both things that people would attribute to him as being somewhat of a messiah. And debatably himself, uh, also seeing himself as a kind of messianic figure for the Métis, but that's for another episode. Um, so yeah, there's definitely um, some parallels to be made there, if tenuous at best. Um, so yeah, so not much is known, or people don't really pay much attention to Louis Riel's early life, because it was a pretty like average one, in a sense. Like Yes, his father was known for being a rather vocal proponent of Métis rights, um, but Riel himself would actually, for his early days, go to Montreal. He wanted to study to be a priest, right? So he was Catholic. Um, he ended up working as a law clerk in Montreal um, and eventually getting odd jobs a bit elsewhere, right? Some people think he went to Chicago for a bit and got some jobs there. But basically for his early years, he would basically kind of wander around doing things here and there, kind of learning the ropes of a variety of things, law, religion, almost kind of like a classical education, but not really, because I don't think he ever finished any full education. Right. (laughs) Education is overrated. Honestly, yeah. Take Uh, it from somebody who's studying to be a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Two people who are studying (laughs) But yeah, he would actually return to Man- to what we now know as Manitoba, so say Boniface, in 1868. So he's 24 at this time. And we'll kind of leave him behind for now to set up another important group in what would eventually become the Red River Resistance. And that is the Canada First Movement, or the Canada Party, as it's sometimes known as well. They're kind of two separate things, but ultimately members of the Canada Party or Canadian Party were also members of Canada First, and it's just, it doesn't matter. Right? So, Mac, we've talked about Canada First before. Do you remember anything about them? Yes, because you reminded me before this episode <laughs> when we talked about them with uh, Halliburton, my yeah. very first episode when I was on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. So, do you remember what exactly they stood for or what they... Oh, fucking Canada first. It's make America great again. Bullshit. Yeah, it's that's. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. It was an 1868 version of make America great again. <laughs> yeah. So the same year that yeah, it's that promoted the British Protestant component as central to, to Canadian identity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. God. There you go. That that says it all. So the same year that Louis Riel would return to St. Boniface and see it kind of changed, by the way, when he left, it was mostly a peaceful settlement. And when he returns, there were already starting to be some issues with new settlers, which we'll get into. So yeah, the same year that this happens, a certain Canada first is created by a bunch of middle-aged white British dudes, namely uh, Thomas Chandler Halliburton's son, Robert Grant Halliburton. Uh, as Mac mentioned, we've already done an episode on TC Halliburton, um, which you can, I think it's episode 16 or 17. You can go back in the archives to see that one. And 
Another central figure who we'll kind of focus more on, Charles Mayer. Charles Mayer. To kind of elaborate on what Mac was saying, the Canada First Party were basically a bunch of elitists who sought to promote a sense of national purpose and basically lay the groundwork for a Canadian intellectual for a Canadian intellectual foundation. Right? So they campaigned for exclusively British immigration. They, they imagined in their mind like a perfect white Anglo-Saxon quote unquote northern race, right? That would harness the country's great economic potential. Right. The great. That, it's the worst, right? There, there's a really great um, book on it, uh, well, in part on Canada First, called um, The Sense of Power, uh, Canad- a Studies in Canadian Imperialism, which is written by Carl Berger in 1970. It's really great. He has a whole chapter on Canada First, and they, it's, it's just, it's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> like oh, damn it. No room for French Canadians, no room for anything but British know-how and economic power. Fuck British economic power. <laughs> I there mean, no. went, we're going to have our own country. Blackjack and hookers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, sure. Why not? No, but it is. Yeah. It's always fascinating to me to watch the formation of countries, especially ones like like colonial countries specifically, mm-hmm. are always kind of fascinating because they're like their identity is not their own. Absolutely. It becomes something that's their own, but it's not really at the start. So it's hilarious watching them come in and argue over their identity, even though they've been alive for like 10 years. Yeah. Not even. Like, yeah. Like literally so all the, these the year old before. white assholes basically talking like a bunch of teenagers. Like, it's not a phase. Gosh, <laughs> mother country. It's not a phase. <laughs> yeah. The, it, it, to bring it back to kind of like the literary element that um, we often touch upon on the show, like that idea of um, like distinguishing ourselves is not only one that we've brought up on the show many times, but that a number of critics like Smaro Cumberelli and even older ones like E.K. Brown have kind of brought up as like early Canadian poets had a lot of trouble doing this, right? Because of exactly that, like you want to be different, but not too different. And so it creates just basically imitation poetry, right? So for example, Charles Mayer, who the same year that Canada First would be founded, would publish what many critics at the time considered to be like a new wave of Canadian poetry and something like uniquely Canadian is like, if you read it, it's basically a lot of John Keats, right? It basically reeks of the romantics. Uh, there's Blake in there, there's Keats, there's whatever, uh, Shelley. And so it's very difficult to kind of say that it's exclusively a new Canadian thing, right? Um, and actually, that's something that a lot of his compatriots in uh, Canada first would actually push him to like make his content more Canadian, quote unquote, um, by adding basically natural elements to it, <laughs> and like having him write about bisons, as we'll see, um, which is very funny. So before actually getting into Mare's poetry, because we'll keep talking about him a bit later. Oh, no, yeah, I, I'm sorry. So. I do want to talk about like this related group called the Canadian Party, which would basically represent Canada first in the Western frontier, right? They were basically a group of settlers who namely arrived in Red River right around the time when Louis Riel was also coming in or coming back, right? Um, 
And Charles Mayer was one of them. He would be the paymaster for the Canadian party. And he would write a correspondence to the Toronto Globe that was basically talking about what they would see over there as new settlers, right, mm. going into it. And we'll actually pull from his writings on the in the Globe a bit later. There's some a bit later in our notes. I don't know if you saw them, but they're, they contrast his poetry quite well, I think, um, in a sense, between what he imagines as a very romantic person and what he really feels as a journalist. So we'll get a bit later into the details of the Canadian party, but needless to say that they're basically embodiments of Canada first as settlers moving into Red River. It's almost kind of hilarious to me Mm -hmm. that we're seeing these people showing up going, we want to be like our own nation, our own people right after confederation, right after all this bullshit, this other stuff is going on and Canada's turning around and going, no, you can't do that. It's like, you kidding me right now? <laughs> like, actually? Well, it's kind of interesting that you bring that up because the, the Métis, while we kind of understand them today as a distinct nation unto themselves, if you look at a lot of the rhetoric at the time, they will we'll get into it, but a lot of them were actually not entirely against uh, the idea of confederation or joining confederation, but basically in a similar way as Quebec would, in a sense. And that is on their own terms. Right. Imagine uh, that wanting to do something to make sure that your people were looked after. Bunch of fucking heathens, let me tell you. Yeah, I know. It's the worst, right? But what, what an asshole. Yeah, I know. It's honestly it's unforgivable. So Charles Mayer himself, as we mentioned, was a poet and considered kind of like one of the greats and his time. I think today in literary standards, he's kind of been forgotten. I think mostly if people know Mayer, it's in relation to the Red River Rebellion and his role that we would describe a bit later. Mm-hmm. But he wrote two poems, one of them a bit later in 1890 called The Last Bison, and one of them as part of Dreamland and other poems, his first collection, which I think are kind of indicative of his sentiments, right? And what he would try to promote as a member of Canada First and as a poet who's trying to form a new cultural standard for Canada. Right. right? So the first um, the first poem I think we can look at is In Memory of Thomas Darcy McGee, right? who Woo-hoo. would be assassinated in 1868. So just before the publication of Dreamland um, and was very much an influence on Canada First. So for listeners who write and remember, Thomas Darcy McGee also promoted very much like a sense of Canadian nationalism um, that was very much along British standards. Now, Canada First itself would kind of bring that to a new level because of the exclusively British uh, focus of their rhetoric, but they still very much admired McGee for what he was and what he represented. So, Mac, did you have time to read some of Thomas Darcy McGee in memory of Thomas I Darcy McGee? I glanced over it. Mm-hmm. It's a long poem. We'll link to it. By the way, again, it's always free. Uh, it's in the public domain at this point. You can find a Google Books version of it. Yep. Yeah, it's a long poem, and you can kind of get the point of it um, so far. But yeah, what kind of stands out to you when you look over in memory of Thomas Darcy McGee? You know, you read over it, and there's very little that would actually remind me of who Tarvis Darcy McGee was. Uh huh. Interesting. It's more, it seems to be like trying to talk about nature. Right? It's like, Tarvis Darcy McGee wasn't nature. (laughs) Well, it almost feels to me like, because I I, I agree with you, 
it almost feels to me like he was like Mare was trying to represent McGee as a natural force or as like a natural progression of an idea. I, I have no basis for this. I don't, I haven't found any like comments on Mare for the writing of this poem, but it, that's kind of what it seems to me that he's trying to do, right? Saying like what McGee represented, the idea of McGee, if you will, sorry, is more important than the man himself in, yeah. to an extent, which I find really interesting, um, especially considering that these were people, Canada first, I mean, who very much saw history in a great man kind of way, right? Like the perfect encapsulation of like the Victorian historian kind of vibe of saying like, okay. there are great men who move things forward. And I think McGee would have definitely fallen into that category for them. And then to completely like dissociate him from his own body is very weird to me. Yeah. There's a passage, um, right. Like the second verse, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. The second verse for he knew to touch if for he, for he who knew to touch our ears with language such as charmed the infant earth when time was young, which brought us from the night of darkness to the light wherein a nation into being sprung lies colder than our thoughtful tears born of the madness of these guilty years. Damn. This is, yeah, go ahead. No, it's damn good, good, good imagery right there. So in terms of like actual poetic style, Mare, I think does deserve some credit. Like he is really good, um, especially by this, uh, by the standards of the time. Like I, I know you remember some of the poetry uh, that we've read and it was really shitty, some of it. Um, but I think Mare does deserve some credit for being an actually good poet. Mm -hmm. Now, some of it in the rest of the collection is not that great. Um, but by and large, I think he does deserve recognition. Um, but it's also just like the imagery that he's, or like the ideas that he's coming through with McGee here of like the driving force of Canada, right? Um, it's not McDonald. It's not the other fathers of Confederation that were also a part of it. And obviously not the natives, right? It's, he's kind of putting them into this kind of guiding light, uh, I guess, stance, stance that is kind of lost apparently i guess to 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 mayor that we've mm -hmm. already lost with his death uh and that canada first is kind of trying to recapture again um which i think is kind of interesting um to me he kind of represents in a sense this idea that oh we always live in a worse moment now than we did before so the past is always better and now we're trying to recuperate that better past yeah. um even though that past in this case was like 4 months ago <laughs> But I do think that it's kind of uh, that at least this stanza kind of um, provides that type of imagery in my mind. I don't know. It's an interesting like idea to link it to Thomas Darcy McGee to me mm -hmm. when you more seem to be trying to link it to Canada in general. Yeah. Almost as if they're trying to imitate the way Thomas Darcy McGee was the propaganda poet of Canada for a while. Sure. Yeah. They're trying to forge their own path now while also paying tribute. But that's a weird person to pay tribute to. Yeah. Um, I think it's because I, I probably, I think part of it is also because he became almost a martyr. Like uh, to me, this is what he reads as is McGee as a martyr in a sense. Right. Right. Because he was assassinated, presumably by a Fenian. And you no, know, in, so I'm on page 140, 141. Um, I don't know what stanzas they are, but at the end where they kind of talk about 
his assassination, where Mayor talks about his assassination. And he writes, burned through the blackest night and in our midst unscreened the felon brood and warned them from our blameless doors back to their hateful fields and alien shores. Mm -hmm. For this, they slew him. Now we lift his abused brow and in our anguish vainly cry to thee who art our God. How long shall hellish crime be strong? Getting some big conservative energy out of this one. (laughs) Oh yeah. Canada first. Absolutely. Of like, now crime is running rampant, or at least it's present enough that it killed our guiding light of nationalism, so to speak, right? And also the idea of the blameless doors, I think is really interesting that Canada has no faults and that the Irish are are, are the ones who just ruined everything, right? (laughs) Which kind of comes back to our whole thing of like the Irish being seen as other uh, in this context, even though they were white and Protestant or Catholic, so like it's just the worst kind of tenuous relations that you can make. And I think it, this poem, we're not going to cover all of it, but I think is really interesting for representing or at least condensing down the Canada First mentality. Mm-hmm. All right. So unless you had anything else to say about this one, you can also move to the last bison and then kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the resistance itself. Let's do it. All right. So there's not as much to say, I think, about this one, but it does represent, I think, Mayer's vision of the prairies, in a sense, because he would go to them twice. This poem was written in 1890. And so by then, Mayer had been to Red River in both 1870, and he would return to it in 1885. Um, Not Red River, but he would return to the prairies in 1885 with the second Riel Rebellion, Mm -hmm. with the Northwest Rebellion. Um, And to me, it's kind of interesting with this poem to see how he, he kind of has this conservatism, uh, this conservationist, sorry, conservationist idea in his mind of what nature should be or how it should be represented in the prairies. And it just jars so completely with what we'll see later as his vision of the Métis. And that's why I kind of wanted to bring it up. Um, just We can only just look at the first stanza and it, at the first uh, verse, sorry, and it very much represents this, I think. So eight years have fled since in the wilderness, I drew the rein to rest my comrade there. My supple, clean-limbed pony of the plains, he was a runner of pure Indian blood. Yet in his eye still gleamed the desert's fire, and form and action both bespoke the barb. A wondrous creature is the Indian's horse, degenerate now, but from the centaurs drawn, the apparitions which dissolved with fear Montezuma's plumed children of the sun, enthroned through Cortez in his realm of gold. Yeah, it's just so romantic. <laughs> it's, oh, this? it's kind of fascinating to me how, yeah, again, this romanticism and this deep discussion and talk about what kind of nature we have in Canada, how we're supposed to have nature in Canada and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. But to then, as we'll see later, like it's almost kind of hilarious and disgusting how hypocritical it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's yeah. just... Go ahead. I don't know. It's just, it's, it makes you feel weird, you know? It almost makes you feel kind of icky. Yeah, because he has no problem with seeing this bison as majestic and as worthy of praise, right? And mm-hmm. as he says, of pure Indian blood. So he kind of imbues it with... Pure Indian blood. Exactly. He kind of imbues it with this like racial purity and mixes it with this quote unquote noble savage kind of element to it saying like, this is what the native should have been, right? This kind of pure, beautiful being that is untouched by modern civilization. Um, 
but then to just completely not really address the fact that you know maybe he has a role or he as a settler has a role in its destruction right i think it's just i think you're right it's a very hypocritical and completely misses the mark also it's very funny to me that he would allude to the to imperial practices with cortez and montezuma at the end of that verse but just not really follow through on yeah, its almost tangible not applic- actually getting them like not actually getting what they are mhm or not caring so I, I i don't know it's it's so weird to me there's a lot that's been written about this poem and we can't do it justice in like such a short, uh, such a short amount of time. And as a kind of an introductory glance to Mare himself, but to me, much like in memory to Thomas Darcy McGee, to me, this was mostly just a setup to see how the Canadian party and Mare and other settlers were kind of thinking as they were coming into Red River, right? Mm-hmm. To me, that's kind of a perfect encapsulation of this. So I think we're hitting on all the main points. Like it is a really interesting poem to take a look at and read, especially when he talks about Montezuma, Cortez, like talk invoking yeah. First Nations history and discussions of like the myth of the mythic past and all this other fun stuff, you know, and then to turn around and then go, yeah, but not Métis, go fuck yourself. You don't get to, you, you don't get to have this romanticism. Yeah, you're not actually part of it, like, but you're talking about people who, well, not from the same area as us, are still, like, we're still living in the same continent. Like, what? Yeah. What? I know. It's, it's so wild. I, I, I really don't know what to, to make of that beyond what we just said. It's just, it's, it's nonsense to me. <laughs> It's it's the con- it's it's the constant like battle of empire right, at this point or like moral mm-hmm. uh, justification of empire like oh well you don't you're beautiful and all in this like weirdly mythical romantic way but we still need to help you right whatever. Okay, so the resistance itself. Let's finally get into it. La resistance. So there is some historical debate, um, again, because what isn't? I think I've, I've brought it up many times in this episode that there are historical debates about specific things. In this case, I want to say about the name of resistance, uh, Red River Resistance. Mm-hmm. In the time uh, that it takes place, mm-hmm. a lot of people also refer to it as a rebellion. Um, where so mostly people like McDonald who would be commenting on this would call it a rebellion and people like the Canadian party would also call it a rebellion. Some historians today still do as well because it was a common term. Métis populations and other populations who were, um, who kind of understand this more as, you know, standing up for your rights, see it as a resistance. Personally, I will also call it a resistance um, because I think it's more accurate uh, as to how the people who actually instigated it felt. Um, if that, That's not to say that I, I can understand why people use rebellion. I just think that resistance is more accurate. That's all. Um, so yeah, as we mentioned before, but just as a bit of setup here, Right after Confederation, Parliament had kind of set up to acquire the Hudson's Bay Company land. And so uh, certain William McDougall was one of the driving forces behind that purchase. He was an MP from Ontario. Um, and he would go with McDonald's right-hand man, Jean-Étienne Cartier, to London in order to kind of finalize the purchase. Right. Which was set to take, uh, to come into effect on December 1st, 1869. 
And at the time, the Canadian government um, bought approximately 7 million acres of land for about $1.5 million Canadian at the time. Right. Which is a bit hard to just to kind of compare in today's money because we're no longer attached to the gold standard. But Woo-hoo. some historians kind of estimate that it's about $30, $32 million today. Right. Which sounds like a lot, but when you think about it, to buy really like 80% of what we now know as Canada is nothing. <laughs> like, I think it is considered to be the biggest land purchase of all time. Um, that would make sense. Yeah. Um, I think there, there there's some there's some like some comparatives that you can find online. In essence, uh, if you want to to see like for scale, the Americans, I think when they bought Alaska from Russia, they paid I think twice as much money as we paid for the whole of Rupert's Land. Mm-hmm. So, it kind of gives us an idea of what we're dealing with here, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. Um, so during this purchase. It was mostly a deal among the Canadian government and the British government. Nobody mm-hmm. consulted any kind of Red River resident, whether they were Scottish or Métis. And nobody consulted the Council of Isinaboya, which, as we mentioned before, was the government. It's just it wasn't there. <laughs> it wasn't Imagine their place. talking to the government. Yeah, just like actually addressing the people who were most impacted by this. No, fuck that. Why would you? <laughs> It's not like you're going to change anything. You're part of a small settlement that's barely an outpost. Mm -hmm. So in 1869, the government is setting up to kind of basically take control of uh, Red River and and Rupert's Land. So another piece of setup here that's very much important, I think, and kind of like a symbol of the resistance is what is known as Dawson Road, which is a road that went from Thunder Bay uh, all the way to, well, the Red River, the actual Red River, not necessarily the settlement, although it passed through the settlement. So the work actually began in 1868, with one of the workers being Thomas Scott, who we should remember that name because he'll be very important in our next episode. I don't think we'll talk about him today. Um, Thomas Scott, on top of being important to the rebellion eventually, um, would also lead a protest against working conditions on the road, which is kind of an interesting parallel to what we were talking about in our last episode with industrialization and workers' rights emerging in this time. Mm -hmm. So you can see that as being almost a commonplace thing in this time of saying, no, we actually do deserve. I think in this case, Scott was arguing for better pay. And as the road was being built, the Red River officials actually warned the surveyors that like, you know, when this is going to happen, well, actually, I'll just quote here because it's much better. So again, using the language of the time, as soon as the survey commences, the half-breeds and Indians will at once come forward and assert their rights to the land and probably stop the work. So they were warned that this is something that might happen because they had not given their consent, right? They, as, as far as they knew, the people of Red River were like, yeah, this is our place. Why would you just build a road through it without asking us? Um, and yeah, so the road was meant to provide employment for the Red River residents in a year of famine, right? Um, but most of them saw the road as an effort by Canadian uh, politicians to hasten its takeover of the, uh, of the Rupert's Land. Mm-hmm. Not wrong, by the way. <laughs> Um, but it was kind of veiled under this idea of like, no, we're promoting employment. Um, yeah, there's actually a really funny moment in Jean Teye's book where she mentions that a lot of the Métis settlers who were in Red River at the time mentioned that, you know, it's funny how 
when we were just, you know, hunting and living in our own way, happened very rarely that we went through famines, right? It's just, it just didn't happen. But now suddenly, since we've kind of adopted these modern agricultural um, practices and techniques. Since we started doing things your way. Famine has kind of happened. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Um, and now you're coming in to help us with this road that for a famine that we never had before? Like, what is, what's going on here? So I thought that was like a, a really interesting tidbit that like she put in the book. almost like we're getting played or something. Wow. Mm, almost. And right, just to kind of bring it full circle, the people who were kind of in charge of the Dawson Road project were also tied to the Canada First movement, right? And so with the surveyors, you'll see people like Charles Mayer come in as settlers, and in this case, Mayer as a paymaster, right? Uh, who is kind of in charge of the finances, in essence. Of course. Um, so this is actually the first... Um, well, the first time we'll stop and check on Mare, uh, on Mare's writing again about the project to stop the starvation, right? And stop the famine. Mm-hmm. Do you want to read actually this part? Do you have it in front of you? Okay. The starvation here threatens 5,000 of the half breeds, but only those. The farming classes are affected very little, if anything by, at all by it. The half breeds are a strange class. They will do anything but farm. We'll drive ox change 400 miles to St. Cloud and back at the rate of 20 miles a day, go on out on the buffalo hunt fish, do anything but farm in a country where I myself have dug three feet into solid vegetable loam without finding bottom. This is a great country and is destined before 10 years to contain a larger population than the Canada's. Yeah. So, <laughs> thoughts? Oh, wow. They're not doing the exact same thing I'm doing. They must be so stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also important to note that this was one of the reasons, like this quote, which came out in the Globe in 1868, in December 1868. Um, this is kind of encapsulates Mare's vision of why they shouldn't necessarily help the Métis. Mm-hmm. They can help some Red River settlements, but not the Métis because they're not working for it, right? Now, I'll give you three guesses as to what Mare himself was living off of if he wasn't giving this money to the Métis. Money? Is it money? Yeah, he was taking, like, it's kind of understood today that he was basically paying himself for a lot of this. <laughs> oh, geez, I worked so hard today. Good job, Mayor. You earned 30 bucks. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much it was. I, uh, Go I buy to... yourself a slushie. <laughs> I don't know if it's written here in the, in the book. I forget. But yeah, it was just, it was no, it was so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, there you go. So McDougal, who uh, we mentioned before, um, would, would become an important figure in Canada first and in Red River as well. We'll talk about him later. Provided $30,000 for the road relief project. Money that was supposed to benefit the people of Red River who are suffering from the famine. Most of that money stayed in the hands of the Canadian party and Charles Mayer. <laughs> so just, just did not give a shit. And that's in part why also people like Thomas Scott went on strike because they weren't getting paid um, because the money was just not being given to them. It was being given to the people in charge, so to speak. So this is just like one first thing that's, uh, that's being done here, right? The road's coming in without anyone asking. Plus, there's kind of some increasing tension with the populations that were both coming into Red River and those who were already there. And a really telling example is 
Annie McDermott Bannon time. And an incident that she was central to and that would basically lead to Riel's rise and beginning of his vocalization right, against uh, the settler policies of the Canadian party. So Bannantyne herself is known in Métis lore for her response to mayors, what can only be called as yellow journalism at this point, um, in which he wrote, actually, do you want to read this quote again? <laughs> because it. it's always great to see your reactions to it. Many wealthy people are married to half-breed women. That's the one I'm reading, right? Yes. Many wealthy people are married to half-breed women who having no coat of arms but a totem to look back to make up for the deficiency by biting at the backs of their white sisters? First of all, what does that even mean? <laughs> what is any of going on right now? <laughs> so this is the level of journalistic integrity that we're dealing with in like 1868, <laughs> 1869. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, so basically... I don't get it. Why do you have to talk about coat of arms and totems? What because... does that have to do? What, what do you mean they're biting the backs of their white sisters? I don't get that. Yeah. Is it a sexual thing? Are they all lesbians? And like, no. I don't know. No, it's a racial. It's a race thing. It's 100% a savagery thing. Yep. Like, um, yeah, so coat of arms were kind of represented. Why is a half-breed woman biting at the backs of their white sisters? I don't get it. Yeah, there's nothing to get. It's basically just him saying white people are better. None of and, this seems to matter. They have a totem, man. It's cool. Yeah. Let them look at their totems. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> um, yeah, so he's saying like, oh, they have totems, but they're not as cool as coat of arms, which are more like prestigious. And they, exactly, they make up for that deficiency in a coat of arms, in a prestigious coat of arms by like attacking white women, mm -hmm. basically. Um, which again is just completely unfounded. So yeah, Teya brings up an interesting point in her book as well as to like uh, Bannantyne's response. Um, so <clears throat> here we go. When by chance Annie met Mayor at the local store after the publication of this wonderful excerpt, she took her horsewhip to him. Everyone in the settlement was delighted with Annie. They appreciated her method of administering what they saw as a well-deserved public humiliation of a man who had abused their women. Mm -hmm. uh, Mayor kept his opinions on Métis women to himself after this public chastising. So you kind of start to see the beginnings of like very like direct tensions right, happening in the settlement. Because this lady just horsewhipped Charles Mare in public um, yeah. to the point where he just shut up. And I love that. <laughs> like, again, great poet, but no, nah, I, 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 I'm, I'm siding with Bannatine on this one. <laughs> um, so yeah, he, it's after this that Hiel would again start to vocalize himself. And he would also write things in response, right? And he would tell Mare that in the future, he would do well to restrict himself to poetry, since that way his writing would at least have, quote, le mérite de la rime, puisqu'ils n'ont pas toujours celui du bon sens. Ooh. Which translates roughly to, they would have the merit of rhyme, since it does not always have that of good sense. Get wrecked. Oh, Damn. yeah. Just pure fire from Louis Riel right there. <laughs> And Riel didn't come to fuck around. No, he really didn't. Um, he also, they, they, Teya brings up another passage, <laughs> which I think is a, a just as good. He says, if we had only you as a specimen of civilized men, we should not have a very high idea of them. Mm -hmm. Just classic um, way of putting it. So this is all happening as um, like 
as uh, plans are being set up to acquire the um, the uh, the Hudson's Bay Company land. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, this William McDougall um, was appointed lieutenant governor, mostly because of his role uh, in the actual purchase. Right. Uh, he was foundational to the um, to, to 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 the whole thing, and even though he wasn't a particularly good politician or had any kind of experience leading uh, that level of uh, of land or any kind of parcel in that sense, he was given a lieutenant governor uh, position and a suite of appointed counselors. Uh, do you think they actually had ever been to the region that they were governing? Yeah, right. Yeah, Funny exactly. Joke. <laughs> no, none of them had actually. Um, so yeah, he was also a member of Canada first and, um, he would arrive there in Red River, basically saying like, Hey, um, I'm in charge now, or I'm almost in charge because it's I'm not officially charge. done yet, but yeah. I'm in charge. Yay. Um, and again, Louis Riel pipes up for this one, and it kind of starts to see the tensions rising a bit more, where as secretary of the National Committee of the Métis, which was a body that dealt directly with the Council of Assiniboia and represented Métis voices, mm-hmm. um, Louis Riel told this council that his people objected to a new government that had not consulted with them and had not outlined the terms and conditions under which it would administer the country. Basically, McDougal and his men just took everything for granted, that they would set up similar things in uh, Red River as they had in Canada, which is to say not accounting for the Métis at all. Mm. So anything that you want to add so far? We've touched a bit upon some more writing. By the way, we will get into more of Hiel's writing. We've touched a lot on Nair and his writing. We will get into Métis writing uh, as it comes up. Is there anything um, that you wanted to bring up here? About before... mid, the real or how people always show up not actually knowing what they're supposed to be looking at? Yeah, sure. Like, anything. Because I'm seeing a lot of Durham parallels right now. Ooh, interesting. Like, okay. let's send a bunch of people who never lived in the region to go take a look at the region and then pass judgment on the region, even though they're not from there and they know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. Does that yeah. sound familiar, Quebecers? It's also just, it's one of those things that you see time and again in history i think in canada in general like or or, just in history in general this idea of like administering from far and just hoping that what works here will naturally work over there right Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's kind of fascinating to me that you know the reason why durham did this right was as a response to active acrimony from french canadians and from english canadians who didn't feel feel represented right and it backfired right the government that they tried to set up was just completely ineffective and it seems to me that they're kind of repeating similar things in this case um it's kind of fascinating to me that again there's a bit of a hubris to it in thinking that you can somehow change that drastically um the situation even though you're doing the exact same thing um I don't know. It just kind of stinks to me. Everything um, stinks here. <laughs> Something is wrong in the state of Manitoba. Not yet. Uh, Manitoba, oh, it is. But yes. It's not yet Manitoba, true. Right. It would become because of this. Yay, Manitoba. I guess yay. There you go, Manitobans. Yeah, You really. get something. <laughs> so, okay. I want to move into like the actual resistance. So Teye herself in her book says that the resistance started in July of 1869, right? 
even though some historians put it a bit later. She kind of starts it in July of 1869 because it's at that moment that the French Métis would start to mark out their territory, right? And start patrolling the lands that the surveyors were trying to build a road on, or at least to you know, uh, estimate how to build a road on. Now, it's important that at this point, the French and English Métis are not acting in conjunction to one another. And this is where I find it kind of interesting uh, in Taya's book that she mentions that the English were a bit more sympathetic to the Canadian, um, Canadian party, not necessarily the Canadian party, but like the idea of Canada, just because they were Protestant um, and more English speaking, they had at least that affinity. Um, that's not to say that the English Métis were like 100% on board. They wanted their rights secured as well, but they weren't necessarily ready yet to um, actively patrol and be a bit more antagonistic as the French Métis were. That would change eventually, but I do think it's interesting that this initially starts from a place of relative division. Mm -hmm. Um, And this would mostly be the situation until October of 1869. Now, remember, Rupert's Land is supposed to pass to Canadian hands in December, right? Um, But, you know, as December is approaching, there are more and more reasons why maybe it won't be possible. So Louis Riel led a group that stood literally on the surveying chain and told the surveyors to stop in October. So Mm -hmm. he kind of stopped screwing around by just patrols. And because he noticed that the surveyors were continuing, he just Mm -hmm. straight up put himself in their way. Um, and it was at that moment that, unbeknownst to most people in Red River, the surveyors were, had kind of called in reinforcements and that there were a lot of guns that were on the way, right? Um, so we kind of hid this, I, I, at least I kind of hid this in the notes, but like at some point, the surveyors just stop fucking around themselves and just being like, all right, we got to get this done. And mm-hmm. yeah, the Canadian government was just like, okay. How about you have some weapons to kind of defend yourself in case things go awry? Oh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is all shaping up. Just, yeah. oh, God. See, it's, it's kind of like that classic thing of, well, it is that classic thing of just kind of always one-upping each other, right? um, which will eventually lead to just a powder keg of uh, That's a situation. That's a bad time waiting to happen. Mm, it's almost like... Mm. Mostly nothing actually did happen with these guns. Both the Métis and the settlers armed themselves, but nothing really happened in October. Um, It mostly created kind of some back and forth that were very tense about people, about the Métis saying that they wanted their rights secured, the settlers saying that they couldn't offer any promises, et cetera, et cetera. And each of them kind of threatening consequences um, in the future. And that's sort of where you want it to stay, though. In a Cold War stalemate type of thing? I'd rather that than open war. Fair enough. And yeah, just, yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in early November, the Métis would actually decide to occupy a fort that had Mm -hmm. kind of been left... um, abandoned not necessarily abandoned but the people who were occupying it were leaving because it was no longer hbc owned and so they were kind of transitioning between the hbc and the canadian government and so during that moment of transition the french Métis were able to basically walk in to what would have been upper fort gary Mm -hmm. and 
this is actually quite important because it provided like a stronghold on in which they could uh, in which they can keep themselves, and also it was an extremely strategic uh, position right? that was kind of central in and around Red River, which I think is kind of impressive to think about the this kind of foreseeing um, some more. Uh, in a more strategic light, this whole thing, right? Again, just kind of always wondering, like, what if it uh, it busts, right? Are we going to have like the necessary uh, tools to uh, to to help us? Wait, if what busts? The if standoff? like, yeah, if the standoff busts and like we have to go out and fight, right, for our land and our rights. Mm-hmm. So it's at this moment that the French Métis invited the English Métis to meet with them to, quote, consider the present future state of this country and to adopt such measures as may be deemed best for the future welfare of the state. Um, And mostly the English and French Métis agreed that terms needed to be set before they entered Confederation, right? Oh, no. (laughs) But they kind of disagreed as to whether or not this should be done before or after McDougal was admitted into the territory. It's looking like it's going to lead to a lot of mass confusion, which is always good. It leads to some confusion. Actually, surprisingly enough, it doesn't lead to as much confusion as one would expect, but it does definitely lead to some, right? Uh, Mostly from the point of the Canadians. (laughs) Funny enough, we're just like, I don't know what's going on anymore. (laughs) By the way, McDougal and his compatriots are still going along as if it's business as usual, um, even though people behind the scenes are saying like, mm, maybe we shouldn't acquire this just yet. But McDougal's just yeah, completely unaware. Um, there are so many sources in which, including Teyer, and I think in Bowering and in other historians, in which McDougal's kind of painted like an idiot who's just not really paying attention to what's happening and just doesn't care because he just assumes that everything's going to be all right. But yeah, so in the end, the French Métis refused to budge on the fact that Canada had to come up with rights um, as a preliminary to negotiation. And when the English Métis refused to accept this, Riel actually told them, we're going to work and obtain a guarantee of our rights and yours. We will come to share them in the end. Which I think is kind of interesting of him saying like, I get it. I'm still willing to talk, but you know, I'm still going ahead with this. And if it so happens that certain things do come up positive for us or positively for us, we'll share it with you. Well, yeah, no, I think that's we are going to work and obtain the guarantee of our rights and yours. You will come to share them in the end. I don't even think there's like in his mind, it's not like, oh, we might share them. We might not. He's just like, no, it's going to benefit all of us in the end. Exactly. Yeah. Like there's and there's there's that integrity to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of interesting because when I read this passage, it kind of flew in the face of the image that I had been fed, I guess, of Riel as very much someone who was like active in your face. And by all mm-hmm. accounts, by the way, he was a very charismatic uh, speech, um, speech uh, sayer, I guess, speecher. Yeah. Um, but it, it, definitely the image that I was in, that I initially had of Riel was someone who was much more pragmatic, right? Um, and even violent at times. But, you know, when I read things like this, it's very, it kind of strikes me to the contrary, that he's willing to negotiate, that he's willing to hear both sides of things, and that in the end, regardless of what happens, we'll kind of do it together. Um, and I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind when we're, um, when we're imagining Riel and the situation in general. Mm-hmm. Right? 
So finally, because of this unrest, right, the increasing organization of the Métis, the guns that were being um, accumulated, the fort taking, the Canadian government decided to postpone the transfer of the territory, but McDougall was not told. <laughs> no one decided to, to just tell him. Um, and he would actually proclaim the extension of Canada to Red River on oh, December no. 1st of 1869. Oh, and no. There's, yeah, this is kind of where it goes to shit, in a sense. This is where a lot of people kind of see also the beginning of the resistance proper, right? Um, here we go. There was a really, yeah, okay. So there's a really, I guess, famous moment in McDougall's tenure where he says, uh, where Taya writes, on December 1st, 1869, in the wee hours of the morning, McDougall sneaked across the border and read a proclamation to the night wind, the stars and the lone prairie that all should take notice and act accordingly. Mm -hmm. Then he ran back over the border and his nickname changed from Wandering Willie to Silly Wandering Willie. <laughs> so like this, this story has come up many times in a lot of the histories that I've read, where it was just like, just him screaming out a proclamation into a snowstorm and hoping that it means something. <laughs> but ultimately everyone, including uh, everyone in the Métis were just like, all right, what the hell does this mean? Just, this changes nothing. What are you doing? <laughs> Which I find extremely humorous to think about. <laughs> but regardless of whether or not it's kind of considered official, um, it did lead to a response by the Métis who rapidly drafted what is known as the first list of Métis rights, uh, which is, I guess, our first stop of literature for the Métis. Did you read this one? Oh, the, the Declaration of Rights or whatever? Yeah, the Bill of Rights that they kind yeah, of... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it all seems like pretty standard stuff. Right. Interesting. So, right. So no like act. There's, no, there's nothing crazy going on here. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's kind of tame. Did you notice also that... They don't actually mention the name Métis in it. No, it's just the inhabitants of the territory. Yeah, which I find to be a very interesting choice. It shows the open-mindedness. Like, it's like Louis again. Like, the English Métis didn't agree with him, but he still said, we're going to fight for the right of you too. This isn't about whether people were Métis or not. This was about the, anybody who's living in this territory should be guaranteed the same rights and privileges. Yeah. Absolutely. Boggling also, idea, I know, but mm -hmm. here we are. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of interesting because Taya also brings up an interesting point here where she says, there's also a bit of assumptions of like assuming going on here on the Métis parts because they were a majority of the population. They just kind of assumed that this applied to them as a majority, right? Which in legal parlance is not necessarily the case, obviously, but it is... Uh, an interesting decision nonetheless. So, right, she was saying the Métis nation was operating under the assumption that the majority Métis would form the government they negotiated and would have the jurisdiction to legally protect their rights that are listed mm -hmm. here, right? Uh, and the list of rights reflects this assumption. But yeah, you're right. Generally speaking, I think regardless of whether it's intended for solely the Métis or not, um, I do think it's really um, a testament to how open-minded they are and also just how forward thinking they are in a lot of things. So like, for example, point six, right? A guarantee to connect Winnipeg by rail with the nearest line of railroad, the land grant for such road or roads to be subject to the legislature of the territory. 
So like actually thinking beyond rights, but thinking into like tangible components that will help build a province or a territory that can stand on its own and can actually be on par with the rest of the Canada's right? or the Canadian provinces at that point. Okay. Also, interesting addition here. <laughs> Number 10, that the judge of the superior court speak French and English. Not a very common thing at the time. Also, that French and English language to be common in the legislature and council, and all public documents and acts of legislature be published in both languages. The judge of the superior court speak French and English. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, also you see this thing, right? Number 13, that these rights be guaranteed no, by Mr. At that one. <laughs> would be guaranteed by Mr. McDougall before he be admitted into his And territory. if he can't do it, he has to get somebody who can. Right. And until he can, he has to stay outside the territory. Mm-hmm. So, like, none of it's crazy. That's the, the point of thing. Like, none of this is, like, out there, you know? At least, I don't know. To me, it doesn't seem like any of it's very out there. It all seems pretty standard. Me neither. It's, it's out there insofar as it... I, I think the most out there part is the bilingual part, which would kind of form a big part, by the way, of the Manitoba Act um, and the kind of idea that we would create of Manitoba and that they would negotiate. Um, but... Obviously, that kind of wouldn't necessarily shine through as well as it was intended to. But I do think it's very interesting that they would consider, once again, the English Métis and the French Métis and say, no, Mm -hmm. we understand that most people in Canada speak English, but this is an important part of our heritage. And just like Quebec will kind of say like, no, we need to represent the French as well. Yeah. yeah. Anything else that you wanted to say about this one? About the Riel and anything else? or the About the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Um, yeah, the one we got ours is a little like, it doesn't seem like it's the official official one. It seems more like it came from textbook. Yeah, it did because it was like the most, it was the one that I found in like short order, but I'll try to find like a more official one. <laughs> but it still looks like it's not missing anything huge, you know? I'm sure there's might be a little preamble or whatever, but yeah. the actual Bill of Rights itself... Folks, it's all, this, it's all the things we have today. They weren't asking for the moon. They weren't asking to be a wholly unique independent thing or whatever. They were just asking to be represented as a place. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think kind of clashes again with what Patrick brought up when we have this image of idea of Lou Rubiel in our heads yeah. of some sort of very intense, very like authoritative, I'm going to do this and we're going to do it this way kind of guy, you know? Yeah. That's absolutely. not the case. That wasn't the truth. No, he was, he pushed in so far as he was charismatic, but he wasn't like authoritarian. <laughs> mm-hmm. By the way, I do He really wasn't think... trying to start a fight. No. He just wanted some rights for his people. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I do think that that idea of wanted rights for his people kind of is summed up with the number 15 of the bill, where he mm-hmm. says that we have full and fair representation in the Dominion Parliament. Right. So the Métis as a people, again, kind of he, he sees them as operating on a similar um, on a similar level as other dominant groups in the provinces, mm-hmm. right? that they have a body politic that can express their voice on a higher level than just the Council of Assiniboia, for example. Which again, not a particularly radical idea. No. <laughs> it's just like, that's democracy for you. <laughs> democracy. Woo. Okay, so we're almost done here. Um, and we've been going on for long enough. So basically McDonald's, uh, McDougall's, McDougall's proclamation set into motion uh, actions by the Canadian party, right? Who basically took a small number of local residents and Canadian officials who fully supported the government and the transfer. 
and they basically armed them, right? Um, they were about 60 men and they were led by Dr. John Schultz, who was a friend of McDougal's and mayor's, um, a member of Canada First, and also an important figure in this whole thing. And they basically barricaded themselves in Schultz's home and store and said, okay, well, you know, if the METI come from McDougal, we'll at least have like weapons to, uh, to hold ourselves with. And when the METI found out about this, <laughs> they basically brought five times as many men to the fight and surrounded them and took them prisoner. <laughs> um, so basically 300 Métis people, um, uh, be it 300 Métis people would capture these, uh, the Schultz party, take them to Fort Gary on December 7th. Right? Um, and among them was Charles Mayer himself, who claimed to his dying day that he lost in the process what would have been his poetic masterpiece because mm. Riel and the others sacked them right, and stole them. Sack them. Yeah. Also, um, so we'll kind of, I think we'll kind of leave it at that. No, actually, one last thing that we should mention. So this happened on December 7th, right? The Miti take the, the Schultz party. Tensions are really right at their highest at this point right? because we've literally taken prisoners with weapons um, in order to get heard. And the next day, Louis Riel would issue a declaration of the people, right? Which is announcing the Council of Assinab- uh, which is announcing a provisional government that replaces the Council of Assiniboia, mm-hmm. right? Now, I don't know. Do you want to read the Declaration of the People now? Because we've already been recording for like an hour and a half at this point. I think we'll or save wanna... it for next time. I, I think, think so. Yeah. That's the kind of thing we want to save for later. Yeah, because I think there's a lot to say about it and it would probably be better if we... <laughs> so, but in a sense, the Declaration of the People would kind of set the groundwork for everything going forward. Right? So by the end of 1869, uh, the Métis have prisoners, they have guns, the Canadian government is starting to hear about this and they're starting to hear that basically the Métis have set up their own little government. Um, and what the hell is that about? <laughs> right? So before we conclude, do you have any final thoughts about anything that we've talked about today? Uh, it's, sorry, go ahead. I don't think so. No. Right. We talked about a lot, right? And there are plenty of things that I kind of had to skip over, right? Uh, because there's a lot of moving pieces to what I initially thought was a very straightforward rebellion or resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't regret it, but I do encourage people to look into um, to look into further sources about this. Not just the sources that we were talking about today, like the writing, the journalism from Mayor or the Declaration of the People. All of that will be in the notes. Uh, but oh. like even secondary sources like Taya's book that I'm looking into, um, I think are really vital to understanding the full scope of what's going on here. Anything else? No. All right. Then take us away. I am. Okay. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. <laughs> you don't have to <laughs> you can reach out with any comments, questions, or concerns on the Facebook page through Twitter and by email. You can support the show through PayPal. If you want to pay what you feel we're worth, or you can use the affiliate links in our recommended reading page that we set up over on Patreon. You can find perks like extra episodes or ad free episodes. Of course, all of this will remain free and optional as we value our independence. <laughs> Finally, we'll write our own declaration. The show of the is with shh, I'm not done talking yet. <laughs> Finally, if you could, if you want to support, see now you ruined my rhythm. I'm sorry. You read the half last. I'm tired. <laughs>
fucking ruin everything, Patrick. I was just making a joke. I'm sorry. Go <laughs> yeah, just give a review. Uh, have fun with it. Just talk to people about it. Uh, we're almost at 700 followers on Spotify, so that's kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, just keep the show growing and going. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks' time for part two of the Red River Resistance, in which things really get hot. Hot. All right. Cheers, everyone. Bye.